Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever, good whomever. This is Alan Averill, this is Agitators Anonymous, episode 180, 180, I don't know, 183, 184, who knows who can tell time just keeps rolling on thank you for all of you who have been uh, tagging me in your end of year spotify roundups as your top uh, podcast or top five podcasts interesting to see in what company i am keeping uh, very often uh, joe rogan but then again joe rogan often seems to be the top of every podcast list does he not um but thank you very much for your continued patronage. Speaking of patronage, I suppose I should mention that uh, you can go over to patreon.com slash Alan Averill, where I have uh, uh, various other podcasts, demos, all sorts of other things. You can go over there. There aren't any tears um, because I've just sort of neglected figuring that out. It seemed a bit vulgar to uh, create tears. Anyway, that's more to my speaks more to my stupidity than anything else what are we going to talk about well before we get to what i'm going to talk about the show is ever sponsored by metal blade records um who just of course released the last primordial um you could go and order the new primordial in bastard irish green no less unless it's sold out who knows um i must admit i don't keep up with uh, all of the statistics i used to as being somebody who's famously, uh, famously, I'm not sure if I would say famously, but uh, mildly, um, mildly observable as someone who is very interested in mathematics and statistics. It's quite odd that I have sort of fallen out of love with paying any attention really to the primordial statistics. So I don't know how many records we sell anymore. Do we sell any? I don't know. Perhaps the band is, um, you know, has crossed the Rubicon, has passed over uh, into a more selective popularity as um, in Spinal Tap terms. Who knows? That's also true. Sometimes you have to acknowledge that. That's part of what I'm going to talk about in this week's podcast. A bit about the aging of heavy metal. A bit about the passing of heavy metal as a as a social 
Um, I, uh, heavy metals, um, we're digging the grave of heavy metals social life right now um, across many, many cities. And I'm going to get into that. I'm going to talk about um, old bands playing old albums because I've been to see a couple of them lately and wonder, um, am I just getting too burnt out, too old, too grumpy for gigs, too grumpy for gigs? Perhaps so, which seems ironic, seeing as that's one of the things I was shouting about the most um, during lockdown. But perhaps that was just playing of the gigs, not attending of the gigs. So I'm going to discuss that. But anyway, yeah, you can use the promo code AA2023 and go to IndieMerch.com slash Records, and you can get 10% off that order when you go and order that bastard Irish green or some other crazy color. Uh, who knows? It was nothing to do with me. Like I said, I have clocked out of being involved in all that kind of thing. Um, last week's podcast about the Dublin riots, well, you know, like I said, I walked right through it. What I would say is, um, in the week after it's happened, if you've been following the commentary abroad and within Ireland, you'll have noticed mainly it seems to be um, a sort of, you know, a, pu- a push and pull about controlling the narrative. There's been very little about um, the actual event itself and more about the riots um, and also the state and the police kind of looking for more um, rules and clampdown laws when it comes to mis- and disinformation. I'm not going to get too much into that, but I would refer you to a podcast I did about 2025 ago, maybe, perhaps, um, and it's about hate speech and it's about Ireland's incoming hate speech legislation and how that can be used and interpreted for um, authoritarian measures and then sort of slide that into some of the post-attack um, narratives. That's what I'll say about that. Um, oddly enough, I just happened to walk around the, the corner to my local shop and come out and find a, a young woman with a very angry, angry face scowling at me as I stopped to look at her, um, scraping uh, the faces off the, uh, you probably have seen them in your city, the um, kidnapped posters that are everywhere about the, um, you know, people kidnapped by Hamas etc. Um, I've done my podcast about the Middle East politics, but I just thought this was like life imitating a podcast in that um, on the main street in the middle of the day, she had her keys out, her house keys, I guess, and was busy scraping the faces off um, these, uh, well, kids. Um, and I stood and stopped with my shopping bags and looked at her. She looked at me as if like, what the fuck are you looking at? And I just looked at her. And then she just kind of scuttled off and I thought, wow, what's going on inside her head that she has her house keys out scraping the faces um, off of a little kid? Hmm. Anyway. Oh, yes, I was supposed to talk about heavy metal, wasn't I? Yes. Okay. sorry about that. Sorry about that. Anyway, anyway, just popped into my head that I thought I should mention it. And by all means, have a uh, have a protest for Palestine Um, and, you know, the innocent civilians that have been, um, you know, uh, bombarded there, whatever it is. Um, but it, it, what's going on inside your head when you have your house keys out and you're busy scraping the faces off a little kid? Anyway, it's the constant othering that's happening in our society in 2023 that's really worrying, is the idea that we um, we know what human nature is like. It's observable through history. Through We don't need to look very hard to see what happens when we other people. We create the othering of society. Um, And it's one of the things that I've tried to do on the podcast is to try and remain in the middle, um, to sometimes to sit on the fence, 
because you know people uh, you know may accuse me of this or that but sometimes sitting on the fence gives you a good view of both sides and to put these kind of to try and put both sides of the argument with a certain levity um and not resort to you know what let's be honest what rewards most social media commentary now is to be the most extreme because that's where you get the most clicks, you get the most infamy, you get the most people following you. Um, reasonable woman says reasonable thing, um, such as that reasonable being thing being, um, you know, don't kill innocent civilians. Nobody reads that article because it doesn't say anything to our lizard brains. It doesn't pique our interest. It's not sexy. It's not dramatic enough. It's not extreme enough. So trying to just step out of your um, your tribalism, step out of your... Um, echo chamber can be quite difficult but either way what's going on inside your head when you have your house keys out and you think you know what i must do now i must stop on the street and scratch the face out of a little kid anyway um i gave her my best death metal stare anyway so let's um, and considering i have a black eye at the moment from being kicked in the head playing football it probably looked much worse than it actually was well for, you know anyway that's a whole different story. What am I talking about? This is why you listen to Agitators Anonymous for my random all over the place commentary. You've noticed probably maybe that some things don't go up on my YouTube page or they go up a week later. I'm sort of experimenting with when to put things up on YouTube because um, I find it's a completely different audience. The same 500 to 1,000 people, um, you know, go and look on YouTube. Um, and I'm sort of trying to funnel people a little bit into um, following, into becoming a follower of the podcast on the podcast platforms. So by and large, the podcasts do come out, of course, every Friday at noon um, in general on the podcast platforms, but sometimes a couple of days later. Um, the YouTube algorithm is quite a hard thing to understand. And also, of course, what it really wants me to be is to become a TV presenter and just do more, um, you know, um, face to camera stuff. Um, but seeing as I have a huge black eye uh, right now, that's not going to happen this week. Right. What am I talking about? Um, basically, I talked about it before. Um, you know, you'll remember I don't begrudge bands touring old albums. I really, I really don't. I think that, uh, you know, whoever made those bloody records, um, you can do as you please with those records. It's really up to you. If you want to go out, I mean, I heard a story, a great story from the wonderful Joey Vera from um, Fate's Warning and Armored Saint, who was on the podcast on my YouTube page, one of the loveliest men alive, um, uh, that he saw an, an era of Queensryche where Jeff Tate had decided to turn it into like a vaudeville 90s, 20s style musical and that he was playing Queensryche songs in the style of... Um, I don't know, like Brecht or something, Brechtian style, and that everyone was dressed up and it was like a sort of cabaret. Cabaret, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, and he just said it was one of the most hilariously awful things he's ever seen. Now, is Jeff Tate allowed to turn Operation Mindcrime into a cabaret? Uh, uh. But then again, if you do look at the poster and you go, that is a thing I want to see, then that's really up to you if you want to see that. But I don't begrudge bands. They did, of course, write those records. They can do whatever they want with them. But sometimes, and I guess I understand this as well, it feels like bands are trying to reinvent reasons to go out and tour and to move the dial. Um, and certainly, I can attest to the fact that the album cycle, um, the Primordial album came out a couple of months ago, and already you can see that the monthly listeners on Spotify have dropped um, a couple of 10,000. Um, they spike up and then it spikes down. I mean, Dread Sovereign spiked up to 15,000 listeners in the first month and then went back down to its usual one or 2,000. And so there's, um, 
the way the algorithm speaks to you, it says you got to keep putting in something new all the time. Rod and Christ are a great example of a band who uh, work it very well. Um, Sackis, you know, will record a song for a tour, um, a special collaboration song. There'll be new versions of old things. There'll be re re-recorded versions, a different compilation, something moving in the Rotting Christ algorithm all the time. And you'll see that they have great, great uh, monthly listenership. Whereas already with the primordial, it spikes up, it goes back down. And now you're kind of out of the album cycle. Okay, you're going to play some festivals, um, but the um, the digital algorithm and the label are kind of going, well, do you have anything else in the bag? And I remember at the time discussing it with the lads with the new primordial, should we keep a song back? Um, and we all sort of agreed at the end that because it had been five years between albums that we shouldn't, that, um, and which song would it be? Which song would it be that you would keep back? We all argued over which song it could potentially be, and we realized that this is going to be the source of much arguments. But the album cycle digitally lasts, um, if you're lucky, six weeks, um, four weeks, sometimes less than that. And then you're sort of back down to where you were. And unless you're going out on your own headline tour um, to capitalize, um, well, we did go out on tour, obviously, with the Par Paradise Lost, but we only played two or three new songs. So there are people, of course, who like the band who are going, well, when is the headline tour where you play a two-hour set and where you play a different set list and some of the you know the um the new songs that we weren't going to hear normally well when indeed when indeed when you're not a professional band um when indeed when you're not a professional band do you find the time to be able to take off from your regular life indeed all that kind of stuff anyway i don't begrudge old bands um playing old albums but i do sometimes wonder um I, you know, how much of it is um of course touring and merch is the only place where you really make any money. So the pretext, a re-recording of an old album, um, you know, just doing that on its own won't be a mini spinner, a money spinner, money spinner, Miss Money Penny, um, won't be a money spinner because the streaming uh, royalties are so uh, paltry. But it's more or less done to create enough interest to tour. I'll give two examples, recent examples that I went to see. The first is um, Cavalera. The Cavalera Conspiracy, uh, doing bestial devastation. Um, I happen to be in Manchester um, doing some vocals for the Winterfilleth boys. Um, I'm not sure if I should mention that. Should I mention that? I don't think it's like, a, uh, you know, a hugely guarded secret that, um, that I might do a little bit of backing vocals for them. Um, on this new one, uh, it's not like as if, um, well, look... It's their own Chinese democracy. What can I tell you? You can wait years and years and I'll show up playing the accordion or something. Um, <clears throat> but it clearly fits into the schism of the Sepultura world. Now, you know, in full disclosure, I saw Sepultura in 1990. Was it the end of 89, start of 90? Um, I think it might have been the start of 90 um, when they meant literally everything to me and they absolutely destroyed. They were a force of nature. One of the greatest live videos I've, uh, you'll ever see is Under Siege, Sepultura Live in um, Barcelona. It's savagery, one of the greatest. Anyway, so, you know, you've got the other Sepultura are doing their other thing. I mean, I, I must be honest, uh, the last couple of Sepultura albums I just heard and was like, what is going on here? Um, I couldn't really care less about them if you asked me to. Uh, I, I did give one or two of them a try, but couldn't get my heads around what was going on at all. But, you know, they're out there playing, more power to them. And so Cavalera are sort of reclaiming their legacy. Um, and the original versions of Betsiel Devastation and Morbid Visions are um, sitting in the digital canon of that new Sepultura. If you'll have to look up Sepultura on Spotify and then you'll go back, oh, okay, 
there's bestial devastation, there's morbid visions. But none of the people in the modern subaltier played on bestial devastation, nor were the driving force behind those records. I mean, we all know it was the brothers, right? But even... So I went to the gig in Manchester. Um, you know, not ex- you know, wasn't really sure what to expect. Um, but the re-recordings are surprisingly decent. They do capture um, the feeling of that mid-80s. It is odd uh, for me to watch Max, who a decade or two ago was a sort of like new metal crusty, uh, tell us about South American black metal over, you know, during the between the songs. But, you know, he's an OG. Um, who am I to argue with that? So you get, um, you get, you know, you get the logo done up to be like 85, the cool uh, looming satanic backdrop, which the artwork, I think, was dev- designed by uh, the very awesome Costin Kjornu, who's made lots of primordial uh, covers and that kind of thing. And, you know, there's televisions with, you know, little TVs with like hell, kind of like flames rolling. And, um, and they start out of the blocks. And as I watch... Now, you can decide at the end of this podcast if this got more to say about me or about uh, the Cavalera brothers. But I watch with a kind of vague detachment. Um, and it's sort of clear as they start that 75% of the crowd don't know the original album and don't know the new version of this old album. A few hundred people uh, lose their absolute shit, um, as I would have done if I'd seen this in 88 or in 89 or um, like I did in 1990. Um, and despite sort of loving this old material, I mean, I remember I had an amazing uh, tape trading cassette of Sepultura World Thrash Festival or something it was called in Belo Horizonte 87 live. And I used to play this cassette over and over and over again. I wonder, has it been released on a record somewhere? I presume it has. Absolutely amazing. And I used to listen to Morbid Visions um, and Bestial Devastation a lot back in the day before, of course, along with Schizophrenia and Beneath Remains. That's my ear. Um And yet, despite loving this material, I was just sort of left kind of oddly cold. I mean, maybe that's just me. They ripped into Show Me the Wrath, Show Me the Wrath, and the majority of the crowd kind of stand in confused, neither here nor there-ness. People start to go to the bar. Of course, the few hundred at the front are um, going crazy. And, you know, the two new guys either side of Max are headbanging like maniacs. Max has got rid of the big, long dreadlock. um, And... I mean, look at, they do sound killer. They really do sound killer. And if you were in the first 10 rows, you probably would disagree with me. But there's something oddly flat and odd about it. I mean, and that could just be my own personal flat line. But until we get like a crowd-pleasing medley, yep, a medley, this is one of the worst things ever. I remember Metallica did it, some medleys in the early to mid-90s, and they would play like a bit of Four Horsemen, bit of Motor Breath, bit of something else. It was just horrific, just... Don't do that. You know, never do a medley. But a horrible, yeah, like I said, a horrible world of... um, So we get, you know, 90s classics, uh, War for Territory, and a few other of those kind of songs. And this gets the huge reaction I guess they were kind of looking for. Um, So for a band who are so huge, this is the huge stuff. These are their huge songs. And the crowd, strikes me, for the most part, have kind of, not going to say little interest, but a passing interest in the first 75% of the show. They're sort of waiting for the hits. And it kind of got me thinking a bit. Are big bands hamstrung by their hits, by their big albums? I mean, by all means, the Cavalera brothers can pick, you know, they can go back to the well they first drank from and revisited. Of course, it's a reason to go on tour. 
um, and make the proper books as they as the guts of a thousand people are in the academy I'm in Manchester I guess it's 50 pounds a ticket or whatever um, you can do some of the maths or the math and then you add in the merch but would this experience exist if the main four of Sepultura buried the hatchet and went out doing roots probably not but it does somehow mean that two different sets of people can make a living still from being connected to this to this music but it's an odd feeling to be sort of too old to get down the front anymore and get excited and get into the vibe as i did in whatever it was 89 or 90 seeing sepultura who infamously had um blown sodom off the stage in 89 i think sodom this was um sodom had just sort of changed guitar player and changed things a little bit more a bit less um i think it was the agent orange tour and um sepultura who the story goes, had flown to Europe in um, 88 and just headed for the Dynamo Club because that was the only thing that they knew. Um, I guess they was, must probably have written to lots of people. But they headed to the Dynamo Club and said, well, we're Sepultura. Um, can we play here? And they said, OK. And then they literally had nowhere to stay. And they ended up staying in a broom closet kind of thing upstairs with four sleeping bags and played their way uh, out of the Dynamo and then started to play everywhere. And that's the that's the mythological story, you know. Um, But... It's an odd feeling to not, you know, go down the front anymore and to not really get into it. I mean, do you make yourself get into it? Do you have to, you know, down a little thing of whiskey or try and get high or do it? I mean, is it a fool's errand to try and reach back into the past and try and recreate that thing that you had when you were a kid? Um, but I watch it with a kind of odd detachment because the night after myself and uh, the Winterville boys sit listening to Sarcophago sarcophago on the warfare noise sampler and yeah i'm i'm totally still into this 85 86 87 sound but i'm not a fan of chaos ad and it's strange to then feel quite so unmoved by the whole thing and then and then a week later i go and see death cult the death cult the cult um you know another band who've had their issues um, and have openly discussed the pointlessness of making new albums in a digital age. Uh, but a band who were absolutely huge back in the day, in the 80s and early 90s, um, with, you know, Electric and Sonic Temple and all that. Um, and I, as far as I understand, they were partly buried. I mean, not only by grunge, but the album Ceremony, this photo of this um, Native American Indian uh, boy, um, um, of this Native American kid. I think his parents tried to sue the band for like a million dollars or something crazy. Um, and this sort of hamstrung the band and they were in spending tons of money recording an album at the time and the label could kind of sense that the wind was changing for this kind of hard rock and that grunge was about to come in. Um, and so the band were kind of buried a bit by a huge lawsuit over a photo. Like I said, as I understand it, the image and ceremony was used without permission. I mean, I could be wrong. And they were basically in the studio spending a ton of money. Um, and then the grunge tsunami hit and washed them out to sea. So they're doing this Southern Death Cult EP in Dublin in the Olympia Theatre and the debut album, Dreamtime. For context, the Southern Death Cult EP has 20,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. It feels very odd. It's separate from their main page. But here we are in front of well over well over a thousand people watching them do Moya from this. You know, actually, it's a great EP. It's a really great EP. It's sort of super early goth post wave, and the sound is great. And you've got to give it to the to give it to them. It's easily the best 
I've heard Ian Asprey sing in all the years I've uh, been going to see the cult. I've seen some very strange shows. One where he was really huge and wearing a tracksuit um, and didn't really seem to sing at all. And another one where he's also very big, wearing a kind of muumuu, a bit like a Homer Simpson style muumuu. Um, and they showed a big video in the middle about um, Native Americans and it was weird. He wasn't really singing so well. But the last show previous to this it was good. And this one was easily the best I've heard him sing in all the years. Um, and they sounded great. But the audience, while being mildly sort of pleased to see them, you know, happy on their, you know, strong reaction when they came to the stage, um, people sort of don't really react because it's sort of clear when you walk around that they don't really know the music. So both bands are returning to their youth. They seem, you know, rejuvenated. Certainly um, both, you know, the, in this example, the Cult and the Cavalier Brothers are better than the previous time I saw them. They seem rejuvenated. But is it sort of naive to expect a youthful reaction from a largely middle-aged and older crowd? The crowd eventually gets rain and she sells sanctuary and um, and comes alive, you know, and, and you get a big reaction for these big hits. But you can be sure some people will feel they've paid 75 um, euro for, for two songs. They again are delving into deep cuts, but again, hamstrung by their hits. It's very hard to say because on some level you're thinking to yourself, this this EP show is made for a crowd of two, three hundred who really know it in a small venue um, who are like completely getting behind it. Not the 1500 people and also the kind of casual people who are there for in both examples, only to hear She Sells Sanctuary and only to hear Territory. Um, so what you get is, uh, you know, I certainly own quite a few of these last few cult releases, um, but do I reach for them instead of Electric? Yeah, not really. But what I'm trying to say is that bands are often competing with their own versions of themselves from decades ago. But also you as a fan are competing with your own nostalgia, trying to tap into a version of yourself from the past who felt a certain way about music growing up. Um, I felt something similar to watching Morrissey a few months ago, who was incredible. But, um, um, but older sections of the crowd were vocally pissed off at him for not just simply playing the Smiths' greatest hits. Sure, they got a few, but they were never going to get... Um, they were never going to get this show from uh, Morrissey. Um, are bands to blame for some fans either not knowing the history of their music or only knowing the beginnings having clocked out of the timeline or only knowing the hits once they left college and life got in the way of being a fan and it's a complex balancing act. On the one hand, it was clear to see that both bands on stage were getting a big goddamn kick out of playing the non-usual songs. Yet here, yet, where I was standing, it was hard to avoid bored middle-aged um, ex-goth women checking their phones during the first 75% of the show. You could see everybody's interested at first and then slowly your eye line is lit up by phones, but not necessarily people filming, people looking at their phones. Um, but I think that's just maybe a part of the modern gig-going experience. Some bands are so huge they can transcend it, like Depeche Mode or The Cure, but even still I saw The Cure open air and Robert Smith said, hey, the first hour 45 is going to be you know, a mix of things, but I will wheel out the hits, don't worry. And as soon as he did, the whole field um, of, you know, yummy mommies got up and started dancing. That's a, an expression you can use. Um, and everybody who's from Ireland will know exactly what I mean. But maybe that's just part of the modern gig-going experience. That 80s vibe, whatever that means, um, or is worth 
you know, it belongs in the past with the youth of rock and metal music. You've all seen that meme, I think, of Judas Priest playing the same festival in 2023 they did in 1983, and all you see is a field of uh, chubby dudes with bald bald heads instead of a mass of, you know, swirling, head-banging hair farmers. But how could it be any different? It's just odd because metal, punk or goth nailed its colours to the mast of youth with aggressive intent back in the 70s and 80s and the 90s. And now everything ages. It's the same thing. Going to see the undertones of the Buzzcocks or, well, maybe Susie Sue now that she's resurrected herself. Um, Oddly enough, no one mentions her armband. Uh, Do they really? Hmm. I feel they might do if that was James Hetfield. Anyway, that's a different point to make. But the Sister Mercy is very similar. Um, Now, at this moment, I'm going to mention that the show is also sponsored by the Irishman Behiach. You'll hear a little bit um, under me talking now, and I'm going to play a little bit of a song right at the end if you want to stick around for that. It's a kind of one-man band, um, I suppose, black metal um, from the northwest of Ireland that the new release has quite a touch more of death metal to it, but... Um, if you like what you hear and stick around to the end you could to hear a bit more of a whole song um, you know the the links and stuff will be underneath the description and you should go and check out their band camp and all that kind of thing and support alternative music it's good stuff um, but what I was just talking about the ageing of scenes it's sort of Maybe maybe there's something similar is happening to your city as is happening in Dublin but that is that all the metal and the rock bars are disappearing uh, they're all disappearing because the same middle-aged crowd, um, it sort of feeds into what I've just been talking about, but the same middle-aged crowd who are the lifeblood of the gig-going, um, you know, um, the main body politic of those who go to gigs. They just don't really socialise anymore uh, or go out at the weekend. And it's sort of leaving the city in the grip of mainstream pop music everywhere you go. Um, my cousin says the same thing about dance music. Once upon a time, 20-odd years ago, people went to hear DJs. Uh, but now people go out in the mainstream places with crowds and they expect to hear their favourite Taylor Swift song or The Weeknd or whatever else. But the rock or punk bar, I mean, many of you have been to Dublin will know Brussels. Brussels now doesn't play any heavy metal. It doesn't even have a DJ. Um, it will just, you're more likely to hear Red Hot Chili Peppers under the bridge. Um, and it's very hard for those bars to compete in the face of gentrification and rising rents and all these other things. But... Um, Brussels as a bar was swelled during the, you know, it was huge during the 90s. There'd be hundreds of people everywhere, but it's sort of swelled by by Ireland's financial boom. You could meet all kinds of people in the noughties and the late 90s and the 2000s from Swedes to South Americans. And now it sort of pains my teenage heart who lived in there um, and grew up there. But it's, it's to say that now sometimes it has 10 or 15 people in it at the weekend. And probably there's metal bars in your area, your city, that are now going through the same dying process. And it's... um. The middle-aged crowd, they now live in the suburbs. They have babysitters, not to mention seven-euro pints. Um, but it's sort of kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, and slowly it disappears, meaning there isn't a place left in the city to hear Black Sabbath or The Cure or The Dead Kennedys or The Smiths or even Slayer. And there ain't really no solution. You've probably heard about me talk about it all before. But, um, you know, there aren't no rock bands really moving into the streaming numbers. But unless a counterculture has reinvention, has some form of reinvention, um, then this is kind of what happens. There isn't really anywhere in the big cities left for people to go and hear any of this music. And people complain that, oh, it's terrible, the Brazil has no more metal um, on forums. But then you would like to ask them, well, when is the last time you went in there and bought a pint? The fact is most people remember it from their youth, so they're competing again with their memories of nostalgia. Um, 
Goth, on the other hand, there's quite a few goth clubs in Dublin now and that goth has been going under some reinvention. But I think that's partly to do um, with that it's much more appealing to in a modern societal way. Um, we can discuss that on another podcast at another time. But it definitely seems like um, this passage of time um, into middle age isn't being kind to some of the social aspects of countercultures. But back to the band thing. Can you blame bands for trying to inject some youthful energy into their careers or doing something different? I mean, fuck knows what Iron Maiden are going to do, eh? Haven't they done a retro tour on almost every period and album by now? Even they aren't going to do a Fear of the Dark retro tour, are they? Are they? And I wonder, of course, will I ever get to the stage with my own band? Um, of course, it can work at a festival like Beyond the Gates um, where Merciful Fate and Candlemas level the place. Old guys showing the young bucks how it's done. And this is where metal culture still works in this way. Festival culture has been very well cultivated and pruned and preened. And I think it can survive when the old huge bands pass into the great never-never. But by large, and it's clear, when you go and see an old death metal band, you get a crowd of old death metal dudes. Same with thrash metal. But then again, how could it be any different? You know, are fans of hip and cool young death metal bands going to go and see Deicide? I suppose sometimes they are. If you remember the podcast I did with Paul from Blood Incantation, for some reason Blood Incantation is, um, you know, the young person's choice of modern death metal. And it sort of makes sense on some level um, that a band nearer to their own age group would speak to them more than a bunch of 55-year-old dudes. <clears throat> but I've been thinking about this and I've been wondering, is it the same in hip-hop or rap? Do younger people come out to respect the legacy artists or is it really a kind of metal thing? Like I said, um, lately we've seen lots of new goth clubs opening in Dublin. Seems the new electro scene has breathed some life into an old scene. Um, it's certainly LGBTQ friendly and has some scope for, um, you know, dressing up to the nines and making an evening of it. And maybe, you know, that whole Wednesday program, I never saw it, of course, but kick some life into it. And there's also the memes and TikTok and dances that go with this sort of moving popularity of goth in 2023 um, connected, you know, to The Cure and Depeche Mode, still being brilliant live bands who have um, a kind of music that fits more into the age now. And the last time that seemed to sort of happen to rock was when The Darkness were really big in that mid to late 90s period, that sort of dirty crew, black glam summer in the sort of mid 2000s. Um, but it feels like the last 15 years that the social circumstance of metal has been really winding down. Or maybe it's just all about you or me dealing with the existential issues regarding aging like we all do and projecting some of this onto these bands. As who knows, perhaps, um, you know, in some future, uh, perhaps some not too distant future um, exists with me singing karaoke of to the Nameless Dead in 2031 to like 47 people on the 24th floor of the karaoke bar in sector 103A of your... 15-minute, you know, um, climate living city, pod city, or whatever, with a bowl of deep-fried bugs in the backstage. Probably not, probably not. We can pray for death before then, my friends. And it might be delivered. Well, that's today's random all-over-the-place podcast. Um, just, you know, a little bit less on the politics and a bit more about um, the aging process of, of uh, rock and metal and of alternative cultures and the fact that... Um, you have to acknowledge uh, sometimes that everything passes on, that moves on, and that um, the changing of the guard, the changing of the guard, my friends. Um, Agitators Anonymous, episode 180 something or other is, well, it is what it is, my friends. See you next week.
And I'll leave you with a small bit of the band Behiok to play us out.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.